And the path is all about finding the right way to walk, making the right choices in life. And boy, God's word is, is really a light to our path that helps us find the right path to take, the right choices to make. And I just want to review a little bit where we were last weekend as we started the series. We began by defining what a path is. So read the definition with me, please. A path is a route or course along which someone or something moves. It provides access from a source. Access to a destination from a source. So a path starts the source, you follow it, and it gives you access to a certain destination. And then we borrow from Andy Stanley's book, Principle of the Path, the principle that's laid out there. Read that principle with me. Paths lead where they lead, regardless of who's on them or what their intentions might be. In other words, once I get on the source of the path and I take it in a certain direction, no matter what my intentions are, that path is going to take me just where that path leads. It doesn't matter what my intentions might be. For example, let's say I have intention to bring down my cholesterol and to shed a few pounds and get in shape. That's my, that's my intention. But every day, three times a day, for week on week after week, I go to Culver's and I order a butter burger and a thick custard shake. All right? My intention might be to lower my cholesterol, shed some pounds and get in shape. But the pathway to Culver's leads to a heart attack, all right? A continual pathway to Culver's, three days a week, all year long. It is very dangerous. Wow, we could probably make a movie about that. You ever thought about that? Wait, I think they already did, uh, something about McDonald's. But uh, now you get the point, right? So it's important that we get on the right path and get to the right destination. But here's the deal we're exploring this weekend and next weekend, and that is why is it we have a proclivity or a tendency to choose wrong paths? What is it about us? What lures us toward bad destinations, even though we have good intentions? Down in Florida, where my parents live, they live out in the country, and in the summertime, the uh, bug uh, population, especially the mosquito population, multiplies exponentially. And, uh, I mean, it just gets lethal out there. And uh, toward evening, one of the things that my dad has done to try to help deal with it, though it certainly is not a total solution, is he has one of those bug zappers, which are kind of cool. And in the middle of it is a, is a light. And on this one that he has, it, it emits like this purple ultraviolet light. It's surrounded by this wire mesh that's electrified. And every time a bug passes through the mesh, it completes the circuit and gets fried. So you hear this sound all night long. And in an area where there are a lot of bugs, one of those things can kill like 10,000 bugs in the evening. So let's try it all the other count of three. Let's all go. Ready? One, two, three. So can you imagine that? I mean, all night long, right? They're getting fried. Now, I have studied this extensively when I've been down there. And I've come to an intellectual uh, deduction. And that is that bugs are really stupid. I mean, I, you think about it, must, they're so small, so they must have very, very, very small brains. Because if I were a bug and I were seeing my friends and relatives end up on a pile, you know, totally fried, I think I might stay away from the purple light. In fact, I think I might put a little warning sign out or a signal out to tell all the other bugs, do not go near that purple light, it will toast you. But bugs don't. They, instead, they get in flight patterns, waiting their turn so they can go right through that mesh and be evaporated and leave dust on the ground. Say, why did you tell me that? 
Because, you know, people who you would think should be smarter than bugs, oftentimes, please don't want to hurt your feelings, we are stupid too. We make some of the stupidest decisions, some of the dumbest choices that just lead to pain and loss in our lives. Why is it I've done it, I'm sure you've done it, why is it we are lured away from the right path? What, what is it about us that we have a tendency to make bad decisions before we make good decisions? Topic the next two weekends. I want to answer it in part one by asking you to turn to, with me to a familiar story in the book of Genesis. Would you turn to Genesis chapter 12? Always bring your Bibles. Genesis chapter 12. And in this story that we find in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abram. Later he'll become known as Abraham. And he calls him out, his, out of his familiar surroundings, uh, out of what we would think of as northern uh, Syria. And, and then he brings them down into Canaan land, or what we think of today in terms of um, uh, Israel. And here's where it starts. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will, make, I will uh, make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram, I want you to pick up from where you are. I want you to head south into Canaan land. And I'm going to bless you, even in your old age. And I'm going to turn you into a great nation, your posterity. And uh, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And the guy just picks up and he moves down to this place that he's never, ever been before. We pick up the story once again in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out from the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Imagine being 75 years old, and you're just taking this trek, and you packed everything up. As he comes into Canaan land, he would have passed through this gate that you see up on the screen. It's a gate that archaeologists have found in the north of Israel. I've been there several times. There's very little we can find and say Abraham walked through there. But we're quite sure Abraham would have walked through this gate, one of the main cities coming into Canaan land. In fact, next fall I'm hoping to take a tour there and lead a tour. So if you're interested, I'll get more information to you a little later on. But imagine him walking through this thing and he comes to this place he's never been. And uh, he prepares to meet a people he's never seen and experience a culture that he's never experienced before. And as he passes through here, he comes to a place called Shechem, there in Canaan. And in Shechem, God speaks to Abraham and says, Do you see all this? I'm giving it to you. This whole land is going to be yours. And he worships God in that place. We read it in verse 7. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And I want you to remember that, that he builds this altar, all right, to God, and he worships God. He just spontaneously responds to God and God's promise, like, okay, God, I believe you. I'm going to trust you. And then he moves south to a place called Bethel. It says in verse 8, from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, 
There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he arrives in Bethel. He responds to God again. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to have faith in you. And he worships him. Now, traveling with Abraham is not only his wife and his servants, but we learned uh, up in verse 4 that Lot is also with him. And I want you to remember that his nephew Lot is traveling along in this whole experience. Well, there's a famine in the land, a crisis. And uh, Abraham, for the first time, makes a decision without consulting God that we hear about. So Abraham's not perfect. He makes some decisions sometimes that aren't too wise. And he kind of veers off the path that he's been on. And he goes to the destination of Egypt. And on his way there, since he didn't talk to God about it, he's got to kind of figure out how he's going to handle this culture of Egypt, the big city. And he tells his wife, I need a favor from you. And what I really want you to do is I want you to tell a lie for me. Because, you know, you're a good-looking woman, and we get into Egypt. Pharaoh's going to find out how good-looking you are, and, and then he'll kill me as your husband and take you. And so I just want you to tell him that, or tell them that you're my, my, my sister, all right? Now, I want to encourage you husbands who are here today to never ask your wife to do something like that. Abraham was a trained professional. <clears throat> so, we pick up the story in... Verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. And so say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. And so they arrive in Egypt and uh, they look at Sarai and she's a head turner and uh, Pharaoh finds out about it, and he takes her into his harem, you know, and uh, he just blesses Abram as her brother, supposed brother, with all kinds of animals and servants and money. And I mean, Abram's doing really good. He's really living the high life while his poor wife is in the harem, not knowing what's going to happen to her. Look what it says in verse 16. It says, he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Now, how many of you wives out there uh, would be just a little bit cranky towards your husband if that happened to you? Let me see your hands. All right. So, yeah. They had marriage counseling, but it's not in the Bible. Anyway, um, that's what's going on. And God, you know, God sees this happening. And God has no intention allowing Abram to mess up God's plan. So God intervenes and he afflicts Pharaoh and his household with severe diseases. Perhaps infertility was involved in that. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, Pharaoh is not stupid. He's putting two and two together. And he realizes, I didn't start having these problems until she showed up and he showed up. Maybe he did a little investigation. Finds out they're not uh, brother and sister, but husband and wife. He calls Abraham in on the royal carpet and just, you know, reads in the act and says, you take everything you have and you get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. So we come to chapter 13 and Abram leaves. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Remember that. Lot's been on this journey. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came back to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and I where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. And I love this. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. It's like he was repenting. He's come back home and it's like, okay, can't do this without God. I want to trust in you, God. And so he's worshiping God once again. 
and now we have conflict. And the conflict is simply this. Abram's herds and flocks have grown so large, and Lot, his nephew's herds and flocks have grown so large, there's not enough room for all of them, and their herdsmen are quarreling with each other. So Abram steps forward, and he basically says, listen, Lot, you choose where you want to go and graze your herds and flocks, and I'll, I'll do the opposite. If you go north, I'll go south. If you go east, I'll go west, vice versa. But go ahead and make your choice. Now notice that Lot does not stop at any point, we'll find out here in a minute, and ask God what path he should take. He doesn't at any point look at Uncle Abram and say, well, Uncle Abram, what, you, know, I, you should choose, not me. I'll go the opposite that you go. Or Uncle Abram, where would you suggest that I go? Instead, look what happens. Abram tells him, you choose. And in verse 10, it just says, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Verse 13, editorial. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Lot looks up. He finds the choicest land. He says, I'm making a beeline. My path is going there. I want that land. I'm going to camp near Sodom. And then we find out that he goes from camping near Sodom to actually living in Sodom, this wicked sin city of its day, the Las Vegas of its day, the San Francisco of its day, whatever you want to call it. And now I want you to skip ahead to chapter 19. The story gets very intense. Between chapter 13 and 19, the Lord appears to Abram and tells Abram that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because their wickedness and their rebellion against him is so great. And Abram knows that Lot lives there and that Lot has gone from camping near Sodom to living in Sodom. And he pleads for God to spare Lot's life. So in chapter 19, two angels show up in Sodom. We read in verse 1, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Lot, Abram's nephew. Lot, who has lived with Abram so long, has seen his example, is now living in Sodom. He's at the gateway, which simply means he has a political position in town. He's like a judge. He lends wisdom. He's involved in the city council, perhaps. He's very much at home there. And these angels tell him that he needs to get up, all right, Because they are going to destroy the place. Take your family and get out of town, they say. Now look at verse 14. Interesting verse. It says, So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Now, why would they think he's joking? Because they haven't seen anything serious in his life to speak, else, uh, to speak otherwise. I mean, he's been one with them. He's been living in the city. Maybe he doesn't participate in all the sinful behavior, but he doesn't seem to have ever alarmed him before. So to them, it's a big joke, and they don't go. We keep reading the text, and we find out that the angels eventually have to actually grab Lot and his wife and his two daughters and usher them out of the city. And on the way out, do you remember what they said? Don't look 
back, God's going to destroy it. You look back and you'll be destroyed with it as well. So they're like running away from the city and um, fire and brimstone starts falling down from heaven on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I can imagine that they are hearing it behind them and they're wondering what's taking place. And Mrs. Lot, his wife, just can't resist. She turns around to look and we all know what happened to her, right? She got vaporized in a sense. She was just turned into a block of salt. And so Lot is left now with his two daughters. They run up into the mountains, and there they hide and live in a cave. We read the sad commentary in Genesis 19.30. It says, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. Both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. So here are these two girls and their dad. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, where's our posterity? Where's the family going to go? So each one takes a turn, getting, his, getting her dad drunk, having sex with dad, incest, and then having a baby and perpetuating the, the family in that sense. What a sad, bitter, tragic ending to Lot's life. Why? Because he took the wrong path. He had a path that only went to Sodom. And it didn't matter what its intentions were. Because he took the path to Sodom. He ended up there. And it cost him his wife. It cost him his wealth. And what a sad ending. Man. You know. How can you be. How can you be. The nephew of Abraham. How can you have lived with Abraham. And. Witness, you know, God's promise to Abram and watch Abram's faithful response to God and watch the ensuing blessings and and experience it all for yourself. And then when the moment comes for you to choose what you're going to do, choose to walk away from all that doesn't make sense to me, does it? What was it that that lured him away? What was it about his life? What was it about Lot that could cause him to just walk away from that and make such a, such a horrible choice in his life? Well, our, um, Arthur Pink in his commentary on Genesis helps us see it clearly because he contrasts Abraham and Lot. Listen carefully. He says, Abraham was a man of faith. And he really was. I mean, he had some faults along the way. But Abram was the kind of guy that, could, that just trusted God. He, just, he, he was always looking up to God, always worshiping God, always building an altar, always being faithful to God, always trusting God. He was a friend of God. He lived by faith. Lot, on the other hand, this was a guy who lived by sight. I mean, what influenced him was what he could see right in front of him, what was tangible. That's, you know, that's why it says in verse 10, he looked up and he looked out and he saw the, the, uh, the Jordan Valley there and how lush it was. And he was very attracted to the eyes and it just was, it was the best choice. And so he went after what he could see, not, you know, faith, what he could not see. Abraham was a generous man. Now, Abraham was very wealthy. He had lots of possessions, but his possessions never owned him. You know what I'm talking about? Met people like that? They're wealthy, but their wealth doesn't own them. I mean, he's a tither. He tithes to Melchizedek. You can read it between 13 and 19 there. He has no problem giving away because God is the source and his eyes are focused on God. Lot, on the other hand, this dude is greedy, all right? I mean, he's got a lot to start with because he's been hanging with Uncle Abe, all right? But he looks out at that lush 
Jordan Valley, and he goes, ooh, 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 I could have even more. So I'm going to go there because I'll just, I'll take what I already have and I'll increase it. In a, in a way, you could say that Lot's possessions owned him. He didn't own them, they owned him, they kind of drove him. He's very material in that sense. Or you go over here and you look at Abram. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 says that Abram was in search of a city whose architect was God. And all that fancy language simply means is that Abraham was always thinking about God. He was focused on the things of God, not the things of this earth. Lot, on the other hand, he looks across the Jordan plain and he sees Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The Las Vegas of its day, Sin City. A, a, a city built by the hands of men and destroyed by the power of God. But that's where he kind of buries his hope and his excitement. Abraham, Abraham dies, all right? A very rich man, full of life, full of happiness, and just all kinds of possessions. That's how he ends his life. Lot, on the other hand, ends his life in a cave with all his possessions destroyed. What a difference between the two men. What caused the difference? Very easy to see. Abram put his trust and his faith in God, obeyed God's words, directed his paths according to God's word, and had the resulting blessings. Lot, even though he had this great example and benefited from it, Lot didn't trust God. Therefore, Lot could only trust himself. Therefore, Lot was drawn to or lured by that which promised that it would meet his immediate need. I want to ask you a question right now. What are you drawn toward? What lures you? What influences the paths that you take and the decisions that you make in life? If I were to ask you right now what kind of path you're on emotionally, spiritually, you students, relationally, sexually, morally, in your career, in your finances, what would you tell me? Is it a path that's really directed by God's wisdom and God's word? Or is it a path that you're directing or others are directing? What's luring you? What's the ultraviolet light at the end there that's just bringing you in for a landing that's going to be a crash landing with all kinds of pain and loss in the end? You know, there are some of us who, you know, in all honesty, we are, we are attracted and lured by the path of least resistance. I don't know about you, but... I find myself easily drawn to, to what won't cost me a lot. What will be the easiest way to go? Anybody besides me out there? Yeah, I mean, if it's the easy way, I'm always more drawn toward that. But the easy way is oftentimes not the right way. The easy way is oftentimes the way that really becomes difficult when I get down the path far enough, right? And sometimes, you know, that's how Satan and that's how the world presents it to us. It makes it look so easy, just... You know, it would be so easy to, to hang out with these people. It would be so easy to get involved in this immoral or illegal activity. It would be so easy to drown my sorrows in alcohol. It would be so easy to get, you know, deal with stress with marijuana. It would be so, so easy to just deal with this issue with, you know, with, with free sex. It would, be, it would be so easy to uh, uh, get ahead by cheating in this area of my business or in this area. It would be so easy just to spend my credit card and not look at the limits. See, Lot, Lot, when he made his decision back here to go there to, to uh, uh, the lush plains of the Jordan Valley, he never connected the dots, did he? He just saw an opportunity and he jumped on it. And there's Sodom and Gomorrah. 
hey, it's Saturday night, let's go into town. And then he ends up in town. His wife goes, you know, I kind of like living in the city instead of the country. Let's just buy a little, you know, bungalow here and hang out here. And next thing you know, he's living in Sodom. And the next thing you know, he's getting into the culture. And the next thing you know, he's running for his life. And the next thing you know, he's living in a cave having sex with his daughters. Now, do you think that when Lot made his choice back here, he saw that in the end? How many of you think he saw it in the end and said, that's where I want to be? Most of us who make bad choices, who take bad paths, wrong paths, we don't, we don't do it thinking, yeah, I want my marriage to be messed up. Yeah, I want, my, I want to have uh, some kind of sexually, sexually transmitted disease. Yeah, I, I want to go way in debt. Yeah, I want to end up with everybody not liking me. We don't think, you know, that's not the issue. See, we just don't think it through. A lot of us are drawn to sensual kinds of decisions, sensual kinds of paths, because we live in an impulse-driven culture. Especially our students who face this, like 24 hours a day, the whole world, the whole culture is marketed toward them to, to, to touch their sensory self. You know, it's all through visuals, it's all through beat, it's all through music, it's all through, you know, pictures, and, and it's to stimulate to, and to get them to, to make decisions impulsively. And, and adults, we're caught up in that too. And so many of our decisions are impulsive. We don't think through the end. Because we don't trust God, we have to trust what the world offers us instead. And the world says materialism is the answer. Have enough, buy enough, own enough, and you'll be happy. So we get some gadget or something in our life and we look for fulfillment and it lasts two weeks. How many of you bought your kids, your grandkids, some kind of toy for Christmas? Let me see your hands. Just want you to know by now they're pretty bored with it. What are you going to buy them next year? That's what the culture's already worried about. What are we going to do for next year? How do we top it off? Because it's an unending, unending uh, circle going, you know, chasing ourselves around and around and around, thinking that the things the world will satisfy us. Look what the things the world brought into Lot's life. I want to ask you this question. Listen carefully to me. If you stay on the path you're on right now in your relationships, in your finances, in your morals, in your values, where are you going to end up? When I was a kid, uh, I used to have to walk to school 10 miles both ways uphill. <laughs> Just kidding. But I did have to walk to school about two miles. And because uh, the bus service, we were like on the edge of the bus service in those days. And, uh, and mom didn't have a car and dad was gone a lot. So I walked to school, walked to school. And I hated it in the wintertime. Just absolutely hated it. I mean, I get to school. and you know, you, ever, you know when you're walking out and it's like really cold? Your nostrils feel like they get this wide. You know what I'm trying to say? I mean, it's just a weird feeling. I mean, I get to school frozen. And my mom would always say to me, you will take the path home that goes over the bridge and not under the bridge. Because we had a river that cut through the center of St. Charles, Michigan called the Bad River. In the wintertime, it would freeze over and I could shave off a whole bunch of time by taking a shortcut and just crossing the river. Well, my mom had warned me never, ever, ever to do that. And being an obedient son, I didn't listen. <laughs> so it was getting, you know, between the thaw, between the freeze and the thaw time of the year. And I really wanted to get home bad that day. I think I'd been in a fight or something like that in the woods on the way. And and I want to take a shortcut. I want to spare myself having to go through town, walk by the bars and all the stuff that goes on with that. So I, uh, I decided I was going to cross the bad river. 
Now, I'm a firstborn, deal with guilt complex, all the issues that go with being a firstborn. How many of you are firstborn? Let's pray together. Anyway, all right. So, like, I'm standing at the edge of the, of the bad river, and I hear my mother's voice going, Don't cross that! And, uh, you know, I'm just like, uh, I could shave so much time. And I, I think I've been in a fight. Something was going on. I was really upset. And so I, I said, I'm just, I'm just going gonna, gonna to cross the bad river. So I get about a quarter of the way on this thing. And I start hearing this pop and crackle and snap. And it's in the woods, so it gets really amplified. You know what I'm trying to say? It's louder than it seems. I take a few more steps. And then I hear the ice starting to split long. You know that sound? <laughs> You know, and it's sending off these fissures of, you know, of separation. And then I'm looking out a little further, you know, going kind of like this. And I see there's water on the top of the ice. And I see little bits of water kind of spurting up as I walk. And I faced a crisis of a decision. The decision was, do I keep on this path and get to the other side? Or I listen to what my mom says and I get out of there and I go the long way, the hard way, the cold way home. There's some of you right now, there's some of you students here right now. And some of you adults who are here right now. Some of you parents who are here right now. You are a fourth or a half the way or three-fourths the way down a path that you know is going to mess you up. You are flirting with pornography on the internet You're playing around the edges, and you keep going further, and it's going to cause you more pain than you realize. There's some of you right now that are in relationships. There's some of you kids right here right now that are hanging out with kids you ought not be hanging out with, and it's not because you're trying to be a Christian influence. It is not your soiree okay. And you know it's taking you down a bad path. You need to back out of that relationship. I don't care what they call you or say about it. You need to back out of that. And some of you adults who are in relationships right now with, you need to back out. You know where that's going. There's some of you financially right now, you are just being foolish and careless of your finances. And you keep that up and you know, you know where that path is going to go. And you just need to back out and take the long way, the hard way, but the right way. Kind of like Abraham, you need to go, you need to get out of Egypt and head back home. That's called repentance. Turn around, go back home, and you need to offer sacrifice to God. What I mean is you need to worship God and say, God, your way's way better than my way. Proverbs 27, 12 says, the prudent take refuge in God, the simple keep heading into danger. You need to take your refuge in God. Today, right now, right here, today, right here, right now, you need to make up your mind. I'm going to get off this path. Would you bow your heads as we get ready to close this morning? And I'm just wondering as you're sitting here in this room today, if you find yourself on a path, a dangerous path, are you willing, are you willing to get off of it? Don't end up like Lot. But find yourself in a place where you can be blessed by God. When you put your faith and trust in God, when you start to make choices that honor Him, He so wants to bless you, and it's never too late. Even if you already have visited Sodom, it is never too late. God can forgive and get you on the straight path. So your eyes closed, right now, your heads bowed, right where you are. If you're on a wrong path, confess it to God. Name the path to God. Name it what it is. Pornography, poor friendships, alcohol, drugs, Bad habits, anger, resentment. 
I, you, I don't know your path. Well, you know it. Just say, God, I'm on a bad path. And I see now more clearly than ever before where it's taken me. Please forgive me. I want to walk according to your ways. In this series, we're going to show you what that means, okay? So you've got to stay here. Get through this series with me. But right now, get off that path. Father, hear the prayers of repentance. Hear the desires of people's hearts to get on a path that pleases and honors and glorifies you. Perhaps there's somebody here today. You've never placed your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful today to choose to walk the way of Jesus? If that's you today, you've never ever placed your faith in Christ. Then at the end of this service, when I invite you to come up to pray with our prayer partners, if you feel led, come up to that prayer partner and tell them, I want to put my faith in Christ. Let them pray with you. Let them pray with you to receive Christ. They'll be all along the front here. Just come up and say, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. That's all you have to say. If you really mean it, I know that you'll do it. Father, just get us all on the right path. Get us all, Lord, making the right choices so that when we end our lives like Abraham, it'll be with a sense of joy, a sense of fulfillment, and a sense of peace of knowing that we've walked according to the paths that you have laid before us and not the ones that we or the world has made. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.